Well, we are in a series for Advent on how the Christ is patterned or prefigured or anticipated in the Old Testament and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those different patterns. And it's common uh, during Advent, of course, to show how certain prophecies speak directly to Jesus, and that's a very good thing to do. But it's not just direct prophecies that point to the Christ. It's really the entirety of the Old Testament that finds its meaning and fulfillment in Jesus. And so we, we shouldn't only pay attention to those passages that speak directly to the Messiah, but also to those passages that speak of him in more subtle ways. Well, last week we looked at uh, how Genesis 2 and 3 and the creation of Adam and Eve and in turn their fall into sin pointed forward to Jesus and his bride, the church. And this week we will do something similar with the person of Joseph in uh, Genesis 37 through 50. Now, obviously, it is not practical for me to read Genesis 37 through 50. That would be probably 30 or so minutes worth of time. So instead, even though there are a lot of really interesting uh, details to this story, that many of which I will not even cover today, uh, my plan is to walk us through major plot points and then themes of that, that story there and show as we go along and then more directly towards the end how Jesus is a better Joseph and how Joseph's life, really the whole trajectory of his life, anticipated Jesus. Well, that said, let me pray for us before we begin. Almighty God, through your only Son, you overcame death and opened to us the light of eternity. Enlighten our minds and kindle our hearts, we pray, with the presence of your Spirit right now, that we may hear your words of comfort and, and challenge as we work through the life of Joseph. We pray that in this act of thinking through and meditating on your word, that we might see Jesus ever more clearly. And we pray this through him in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, it's, it's helpful to have your, <clears throat> excuse me, your Bible, Bible handy, but I, I'm, I'm going to be working pretty quickly from chapter 37 through 50. I won't hit every chapter, but it's useful to have it handy. Maybe you can mark it as, as we go along. So we start with Genesis 37, and there we find Joseph, the 17-year-old 11th son of Jacob, who has been set apart by his father and is beloved by him. Even at the young age of 17, Joseph was given the privileged position of authority over his brothers, some of whom had to be at least, if not more, uh, 20 years older than him. Now, this is indicated both by the robe that Jacob gave to Joseph, but also because Jacob sent Joseph out to report on what his brothers were doing in the field, shepherding their father's flocks. So Jacob was not so much a tattletale, as you sometimes hear uh, from interpreters, but really more so a foreman or the chief shepherd over his brothers. He's sent out from the right hand of his father to oversee his older brothers, and his brothers hate him for it. In fact, as the text says, they were jealous of him for it. Now, one way of thinking about them, that is his older brothers, is that they were themselves unfaithful shepherds, both literally and figuratively. So, for example, Reuben's, Jacob's firstborn son, took one of his father's concubines, that is, some of his brother's mother, and in turn lost his birthright over it. 
Simeon and Levi, that's the second and third born, they slaughter the village of Shechem that was in covenant with Jacob and was circumcised. The men were circumcised. That means that village was counted as part of God's people, so they slaughtered their brothers and sisters. And, and Judah, the fourthborn, in the very next chapter, that's chapter 39, abandoned the people of God and took a Canaanite wife and visited cultic prostitutes. In comparison, Joseph is the righteous son of the father, and it's not even close. Well, returning to the text, in chapter 37, Joseph receives two important dreams that were to lay out both Joseph's future and the future of God's people and really the world at that time itself. And in the first dream, grain, and by implication bread, is a central image even as Joseph's future role of rule over his brothers is laid out there. In the second dream, he dreams that the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him, symbolism easily recognized by his family as pointing to them. The result was that his brothers hated him and grew even more jealous of him, just as Israel's leadership hated Jesus and grew jealous of him, as the Gospels tell us. And in turn, Jacob, his father, rebuked Joseph. Even so, his father kept what Joseph said, his, his reporting of his, his dreams, in his mind. He kept it in his memory, similar to how Mary in the book of Luke treasured up what the shepherds reported about the angel's announcement of Jesus' birth. It's virtually the same thing, puzzled by it, don't know what to do with it, maybe even a little taken aback by it, but they remembered. Upon seeing... Uh, Joseph at a distance now. Remember, he's been sent out to report on his brothers. His brothers, in turn, conspire to kill him and throw him into a pit and blame it on wild animals. And Reuben convinces them, he's the firstborn, remember, to merely throw him into the pit in an attempt to hide or bide his time, excuse me, to save Joseph's life. So his brothers strip Joseph of his robe of authority. They cast him into the pit, and then they casually sit down to eat. It's reminiscent of how the Jewish authorities celebrated Passover right after Jesus had died on the cross. Now, in the distance, they see, as they're eating, they see Ishmaelites, who are descendants of Abraham's unfaithful attempt to force God's hand to bless him. That's Ishmael, right? So they sell Joseph to those people, to the Ishmaelites. It's a completely wicked rejection of God's covenant made with Abraham, that they would sell one of their brothers to a false brother, and they do it for a slave's price, not unlike what Judas did with Jesus, selling him for the slave's price. Now, unlike the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day, Joseph's brothers do not want his blood on their hands. So they think by selling him into distant relatives, they had avoided that problem. And again, it's very similar to how the Jewish authorities outwitted Pilate and forced him to crucify Jesus so that they would not be unclean for the Passover. So they could think in some sense, well, our consciences are clean. We didn't actually kill him. So Reuben, who again, the firstborn had 
he had tried to save Joseph. He, he is deeply upset to find out that this, this has happened, that they have sold their brother Joseph into slavery. And he's so set, upset that he, you know, he tears his robes and he, he loses his mind, but it's not so much because he loved his brother. Everything indicates that he probably didn't love him much at all. It's rather because he's the firstborn and he was responsible for Joseph, and now he wonders, what am I going to say to dad? So the brothers together devise a plan to deceive their father over his beloved son, and they keep up the lie for well over a decade. As far as they are concerned, like the Sanhedrin at the crucifixion of Jesus, they have dealt with the dreamer of dreams. Now, in chapter 39, we find that Joseph has been sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, and over time, through God's blessing, Joseph is put in charge over everything in Potiphar's house. Nothing is held back from him except for Potiphar's wife. Now, previous to this in chapter 38, we find this weird intrusion into the story with the story of Judah, the fourthborn, who went away from his brothers and presumably his father too and took a Canaanite wife and had sons by her. So Judah very much like Eve in the garden, he was taking something he should not take. He was taking a wife from a people he should not take a wife from. And both of Judah's sons were wicked in God's sight, and God killed both of them, leaving one of Judah's daughters-in-law, Tamar, essentially defenseless. Now, Tamar appealed to Judah to take care of her, and a righteous man would have. A righteous man like, say, Boaz would have taken care of his daughter-in-law. But Judah refuses until, like how Nathan confronted David for his predatory sexual immorality, Tamar, through sexual deception, compels Judah to act on her behalf, further revealing Judah's unfaithfulness. Now, the question comes up is, why on earth is this here? This is such a weird, perverse story. Well, the event is included in Genesis to contrast Joseph with his brothers. In particular, Judah, who is the other main brother of the story. Joseph is the one, is one of the few people, in fact, in the whole Bible, who is presented as a truly good man. In fact, if you look back to our our preparation, the Jeremiah, what it was talking about, the blessing will come to both Israel and to Judah, what it has in mind is really to the lineage of Joseph, who carried on Israel, and to Judah, the one in this very chapter. So whereas Judah's sons were wicked and God killed them, Joseph's future sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are not only considered righteous, they are blessed alongside Jacob's other sons, and they will be given future allotments of territory in the promised land. Now, as an aside, even as we know that the Messiah would come through Judah, just like we read from Jeremiah, even so, the movement of God's blessing traveled from Jacob through Joseph. Case in point, even when the kingdom split after Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel was often referred to as Joseph's younger son, Ephraim, who was blessed by Jacob over his older brother, Manasseh. So, when faced with the temptation to take what was forbidden from him, this is chapter 39, Potiphar's wife. Unlike Judah, Joseph kept God's word, and he was hammered for it. He, was, he suffered for doing what was right. 
And in chapter 39, Potiphar's wife lied to her husband, falsely accusing Joseph of a crime he did not commit. And in turn, Potiphar threw Joseph into the royal prison where he would remain for somewhere close to a decade or so. Again, in prison, God blessed Joseph and he rose in stature again, essentially running the prison just as he had run Potiphar's house. And you see this theme where he is always at the right hand of wherever he is, whether it was his father's house or Potiphar's house or now in prison. In chapter 40, Joseph encounters two royal officials recently imprisoned by Pharaoh for offending him. That's the baker and the cupbearer. Now, the baker was responsible for providing bread for Pharaoh's table. So don't, don't think of this as a man who spent his time in the kitchens but more so as the man responsible for providing food for Egypt. And the cupbearer was responsible for ensuring the safety of Pharaoh's cup and in turn his person. So bread and wine are deeply important uh, signs in, in this, this event. So these were high-ranking, important, and trusted officials close to the most powerful man in the world at that time. Now, while in prison, both, both of these officials have dreams, as you probably remember, one involving wine and the other bread, and both dreams involve a three-day time period that would result in the restoration of one man to his office, that's the cupbearer, and the death of the other, that's the baker. And both men recognized that their dreams were not ordinary dreams, that they were actually incredibly unique. They were distinctive I know everyone thinks their dreams are distinctive, but these were really distinctive and they're very vivid and the memory of them persisted long after they awoke. But they also recognized they don't know what they mean and they could not interpret them. And in response, Joseph, a man who has also received very distinctive dreams from God, said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? And so he accurately interprets their dreams but is soon forgotten and remained in prison for some time more. Well, after this, sometime later, Pharaoh had two vivid dreams himself that no one could interpret, at which, at which point the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, there's, there's this guy in prison, Joseph. And so Joseph is then cleaned up. He's brought into Pharaoh, and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. Now the dreams, as Joseph explained to Pharaoh, were given from God to Pharaoh to tell him how the next 14 years would go. There would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Famine almost always in the Bible is judgment, almost every single time. The dreams themselves were indications then that God was not only judging Egypt's gods associated with the sun and the Nile, and I'm not walking through the specifics of those, those dreams, but that's really what's in view, those were two gods that the Egyptians believed gave them their abundance, and it's what is at the heart of some of the plagues and the, the, the ten plagues in Egypt later. But in turn, God was showing them that he alone provided for Egypt and the world's life. But Joseph didn't merely interpret the dreams. He provided Pharaoh with the means of salvation, a means of escape from the coming judgment. And in response, Pharaoh believed him. So compare this against what would happen hundreds of years later with a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who enslaved God's people, who rejected the word of God's prophet Moses about certain coming judgment. 
and in turn would reject God's offer of salvation in the Passover. God offered to relent over and over again in those ten plagues, and Pharaoh, in that case, turned them down every single time. Now, in the case of Genesis, it seems fairly clear that not only Pharaoh, but a sizable portion of Egypt turned to the true God as well. Case in point, in chapter 47, God blessed Pharaoh. God blessed Pharaoh, which would have meant that Pharaoh bowed before Jacob. No pagan king would ever do such a thing unless he believed the true God was blessing the world through the line of Abraham, in particular Jacob and then Joseph. Joseph himself took an Egyptian bride. Again, compare this against Judah taking a Canaanite bride. But there is no way, as we've already seen with Joseph, there is no way Joseph would have done such a thing had the woman, and most likely her family, not come to faith. Again, the difference can be seen in how God killed Judah's sons, but blessed Joseph's sons. Where Judah was faithless among pagans, Joseph was faithful among the pagans. In response to Joseph's interpretation and his offer of salvation, that is, how can you make it through this time, Pharaoh elevated Joseph to his right hand and gave him authority over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh called Joseph Zaphanath Paneah, which means something along the lines of God speaks, he listens. Joseph, who listens to the true God alone, also speaks for him, and in turn, the world finds life through Joseph. Or as chapter 41, verse 57 puts it, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, the seven years of famine hit the land of Canaan too. It's over all the earth, driving Joseph's brothers to come to him unknowingly for bread, just as Joseph's dreams a decade earlier had told them. So they have no idea, no idea that Zaphonath Paneah was their brother, Joseph. Joseph then tests them in chapter 42, not unlike how Jesus tested his disciples after his resurrection. Peter, do you love me? That's a testing. And it leads to their confession of what they did to Joseph right in front of him unknowingly because they don't realize that the man before them speaks Hebrew and knows it, and they don't recognize him as Joseph, but they make an initial confession of sin right there. And what Reuben rightly feared would happen, that their brother's blood would be on their hands, looks to be happening. It looks like they are going to be judged for what was happening, what they did to their brother all that time ago. So Joseph takes Simeon hostage and sends the remaining brothers out with grain, demanding that their younger brother, Benjamin, return with them next time. See, Joseph knows this famine is not going away, and he knows that the food will run out. So he demands next time they have to bring their brother, Benjamin. Meanwhile, Joseph also puts their money into their newly bought bags of grain. So his brothers, in a certain sense, bought food without money from their brother's hand. Or as Joseph would tell them later on their second trip to Egypt when they were forced to come again, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father 
has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Now this is from the hand of God. On that second trip, they are forced to bring Benjamin with them against Jacob's wishes. And again, Joseph tests them. But before testing them, he throws a feast for them. And he blesses Benjamin, now the youngest brother, five times as much as the other brothers, following a pattern that we've seen right from Abel. And the way that Joseph tests his brothers is essentially the same as what Joseph endured uh, through Potiphar's house. So even as God blessed Joseph, a false report was made against him, and he was accused of taking something that was forbidden from him. Only in this case of Joseph's brothers, the false report is made against Benjamin, the blessed brother, and Joseph's cup, Joseph has, you see, long since replaced the baker and the cupbearer as Pharaoh's most trusted man. The cup of Joseph's blessing is found in Benjamin's possession. In chapter 44, beginning at verse 14, and I'm just summarizing here, the brothers bow before Joseph again in fulfillment of his dreams a decade earlier, and Judah, speaking for his brothers, confesses their guilt to him and in turn offers his life in place of Benjamin's. So clearly the decade between chapter 39, remember what Judah was doing there, in 44, saw God working on Judah slowly, leading to his conversion and his repentance. Whereas before Judah was unconcerned to take care of widows in his own home, now he offers his life in place of his brothers. And at this, Joseph cannot keep his, his composure any longer and reveals everything to his brothers that Joseph was sent ahead to prepare a place for his brothers, a remnant of God's promise, and what they intended for evil against their father's beloved son, God intended for good. And when Pharaoh hears of what happened with Joseph's family, he offers Joseph the best part of Egypt, Goshen, and there in the midst of the world, God made a place for his people. Well, with that believe it or not, brief synopsis of the story of Joseph, and I left out a lot of details. Hopefully you can start to hear and you can start to see how this anticipates Jesus' life too. Now, an obvious way you can see this happening in the text is through robes. Robes. Robes are all over this story, and rightly so. Since Genesis 3, humanity has been clothed in death if you'll remember from last week, clothed in death and shame. And the promise of the gospel, the promise that God makes to Eve is that he will robe humanity. He will robe his people in glory and honor. So Joseph, who was robed by his father in splendor and given authority over his brothers, was disrobed by them in shame and dishonor and nakedness. His his robes were torn apart and covered in the blood of animals. He was thrown into the pit, sold into slavery, only to be raised to the right hand of Pharaoh, who was the father of Egypt, who re-robed him even more so and adorned him in even greater honor and, and royalty. See, going down to the pit and being raised from it is a picture of death and resurrection. Is it literal? No, but it is a picture of of what was to come. And this sort of imagery, like we saw last week with, with Adam and his death-like sleep, 
is often repeated in the Old Testament in various images. All you have to think about, the one that should readily come to mind, is Jonah in the belly of the great fish. That, too, is a death and resurrection image. And this pattern of death and resurrection coupled with the movement from glory at the right hand of Jacob to dishonor and shame, and then to even greater glory, is exactly how Paul describes Jesus in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So just as the beloved son of Jacob was sent to his brothers, was stripped of his glory, torn apart and covered in blood, only to be raised to an even greater glory and status by Pharaoh, so too, to an infinitely greater degree, Jesus, the Son of God, of the Father. Joseph's torn robes covered in blood, animal blood, coupled with his descent into the pit and slavery, indicated that the beloved son, hated by his brothers, was sacrificially given for them in some sense. They put him there. They tore his robes. They put him into death. As Caiaphas, the high priest, would say about Jesus in John 11, it is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. That's how Joseph's brothers thought about him. It is far better that we get rid of him than we be ruled by that guy. In Jacob's final blessing of his sons before he dies, Jacob mentions that the scepter of rule would not leave Judah's house. That is, the Messiah would come through his lineage. And I think most Christians recognize that. We, we know, we see that one. I understand that one. But strangely, he also says that Judah would wash his robes in wine, in the blood of grapes. That's chapter 49. And of course, bread figures heavily in the story, and we're going to come back to that at the very end. But throughout the Bible, wine often symbolizes blood, like how with the Lord's Supper, or as he says here in chapter 49, the blood of grapes. That's what wine is, the blood of grapes. That's like how the people of God in Revelation 7 are described. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. For Judah to wash his robes in wine implies that he has been sanctified. But who or what has sanctified him? Who has led him to repentance? In this case, it was Joseph who was set apart for his people. Joseph was sentenced to death by his brothers, even as it was Joseph who elevated them not just to life, but to glory. Now, of course, Joseph did not actually die, even as his robes were covered, not in his own blood, but in the blood of animals, which both looks back to Adam and Eve. Remember how they were covered in skins by God? But also to the future Levitical sacrificial system. So as, as righteous as Joseph was, he himself 
could not atone for his brothers. Instead, this is a picture, an anticipation of what was to come in the Messiah. So when you read that in Revelation 7 about the saints washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb, that includes people like Judah. Joseph looks all the way forward to that. Like Jesus, Joseph's brothers hated him for his beloved status, and they hated him for what his robe signified. In fact, they were jealous of him. But their hatred and their jealousy, instead of bringing them closer to their father, actually created more distance from him. They were already unfaithful, but this act made them even more distant from them. And of course, their jealousy was misplaced. Joseph was not a tyrant. No, he elevated them to royalty too. That's the irony. He took care of all their needs, and, in, and by chapter 45, he had robed them in glory too. Literally, he had given them robes, and they enjoyed the best that Egypt had to offer, but perhaps more so, Joseph's testing of them in chapters 42 through 44 leads them to the confession of their sin, which they had not made for a decade. They've been holding on to that for a decade. They've been eating at them, and in turn, it leads to their restoration, of course, with Joseph himself, but with their father too. So while they bowed to him, the brothers even described Jacob as Joseph's servant. Remember, I didn't read this, but Jacob says, am I supposed to be your servant? Yes. They described Jacob as Joseph's servant in fulfillment of those dreams. Joseph was so kind to them. He feasted with them. The end of chapter 43 says that they ate and drank and were merry with Joseph, the very thing that Jesus did with countless sinners. And it was Joseph who removed all the barriers keeping them from himself and his father, but more so from God himself. So the brothers, if you read through that, they do not make amends. They do not make amends. They do not make things right. No, Joseph laid down his life for them, which led to their repentance. Even then, it was still Joseph who provided for them. He provided everything for them. He loved his brothers who hated him. And this, of course, is exactly what Jesus did, too. Despite how the Jewish leadership hated Jesus and how they grew jealous over the apostles in the book of Acts, they need not be jealous of him. Jesus laid down his life for his brothers and offered to elevate them to a far higher status than what they had without him. Of course, in Joseph's story, the first people who are converted by Joseph's word are Egyptians. They're Egyptians, Gentiles, and only later do his brothers listen to him. Even his father rebuked him from his, for his word from God. Likewise, Paul, who at first hated Jesus, in Romans 9 through 11, mentions a similar pattern as Gentiles responded to his preaching, and his own Jewish brothers rejected him, and his hope that the Gentiles coming to faith would move the Jews to jealousy too, just like what you see happening here. In chapter 50, after the funeral of, of Jacob in the Promised Land, a funeral that included Joseph and his brothers, the household of Pharaoh, maybe not Pharaoh himself, but the household of Pharaoh, and the elders of Egypt, so the, most, the nobility, the most powerful people in Egypt, go to Canaan 
for this funeral of Jacob. So Jew and Gentile together, blessed by the covenant God made with Abraham. Joseph's brothers fear that with Jacob now dead, Joseph would punish them for what they did. But Joseph, in response to their fear, says, What you intended for evil against me, God intended for good for many people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, for their salvation. And this not only gets at how Jesus treated his own disciples who abandoned him to his death. He gently restored them, and though they abandoned him, he would not abandon them. He tested them to be sure, but he did not abandon them but also how all of history is not merely directed by God, as if he's, that, that phrase, you know, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, is often taken as merely kind of predestination language, which it is, as if God is just kind of an austere watchmaker who's wound up things and he knows exactly how it's going to go. No, it's God's purposes are always movements of kindness towards humanity. After all, in his judgment of the false gods of Egypt, God turns Pharaoh and a good portion of Egypt to himself, and he offers them a way of salvation in the face of certain death in the famine through his chosen servant. God never leaves humanity to die in their sin. He never says, you know what, figure it out. Good luck with that. Right from Genesis 3, God promised a way of salvation, a way to life and communion with him through certain death. So just as robes, believe it or not, I could have said more. Just as robes figure all the way through the story, so does bread, but don't worry, I'm not going to say nearly as much. Humans, like every creature, if you think about this, humans, like every creature God made, are dependent on him for their existence. So just think about your, your right now. Without air, which, rightly, the Greek language also says spirit. Without air, we die within minutes. Without water, we die within days. Without food, we die within weeks. Every moment of every day is a reminder that God provides every last thing we need. And if he does not provide it, we will die. Basics, air, water, food, we die. And what's so telling about this is that we cannot produce any of these things on our own. Think about that. You can't produce air. We can't produce water. We really can't produce food, too, though we sometimes think we can. I mean, a farmer can do everything right, you know, till the ground, plant the seed, water the ground. But if God does not cause that crop to grow, it will not grow. Even so, as good as Joseph was, as much as he provided for Egypt and the world, the book of Genesis ends with his death. Since Adam, everyone except for Enoch and Elijah has died. God has provided for humanity from the beginning, whether they recognize it or not. And in the end, humanity still dies. But as Jesus, the better Joseph, demonstrates with things like the feeding of the 5,000, or with the woman at the well, or with how he describes himself in the book of John as the bread of heaven, or with the Lord's Supper that we're getting ready to celebrate here in a moment. Even as he alone provides food for the world, which he does, he goes well beyond Joseph by providing a better bread where we will never hunger again because we will not die. Whereas Joseph saved his people and provided for the world for a time, 
Jesus is himself the bread that gives life forever. It's why in the Lord's Supper, what's on view is not merely that Jesus provides for our temporal needs. He does that, and we are to pray for that. It's that he's provided for our greatest need, salvation through certain death, the famine of death that nobody can shape, and he has provided it forever. So Jesus, the beloved son, think about this now. This is it. Think about this. Jesus, the beloved son, sent by the father, rejected and sentenced to death by his brothers, descended into the pit, raised to the right hand of the father, washing his people's robes and his blood, elevating them to royalty with him, uniting us to himself through his word and spirit so that we might feast with him at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. That is who we are because of the better Joseph. He is the one who listens to God and speaks for him. He is the one who invites us to come now and to buy food without money. Let's go to him in prayer as we do that very thing. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word made flesh in your Son. We give you thanks for this heavenly bread that we will participate in here in just a few moments. We thank you for the grace we enjoy and the life that we have so that we know that even in death, it is no more difficult than falling asleep because you have beat everything. Thank you for providing a great feast, a way through the famine. We pray all of this in the greater Joseph's name, Jesus. Amen.